You're listening to The Movement, a Holy Family School of Faith podcast. Tonight we're looking at tools for gaining interior peace. I said last week that interior peace is the presence of the Holy Trinity in our souls. And this interior peace comes to us through baptism. Since we've all been baptized, we should all have interior peace. And we know that we don't, or few don't. And there are reasons for that. We laid them out last week. Why don't we have this peace? We mentioned several causes, but I want to reinforce two. The two biggies, in my opinion. Sin and the fact we don't control our thoughts. We allow ourselves to be fearful about future or past events which are no longer real. And we get disturbed because even when we're thinking about future events that will be real, we can never predict the action of God when it becomes real. God is totally unpredictable. This is the mistake that we make. We forecast what it's going to be like when this economy collapses, when the wars spread, when the earthquake hits, when whatever, the floods come, the tornadoes come. What's it going to be? It's just going to be terrible. Well, yes, those things are terrible. But what we cannot do is predict what will be happening in my life as I'm opened up to the Holy Spirit and the power of God working in the concrete, grace-filled, present moment. That we cannot predict. Just look at the apostles. Look at our Lord. He spends day after day for years with these guys. And he's always surprising them. They never have him figured out. He always does something that catches them off guard that they can't understand. He even told them over and over again, I'm going to be crucified, but I'm going to rise again. They didn't get it. He surprised them. God is a great artist that way. That's what a great artist does. A great artist is always able to come up with something new, something that no one ever thought of. That's God. Our Lord even surprised the Blessed Mother, the perfect woman when she's looking for him and he's in the temple teaching. Why are you here? Didn't you know your father and I have been looking for you? And he says, I'm doing my father's work here in the temple. Freaked her out. She wasn't expecting it. So if they didn't expect it, those who spent all that time with him and the perfect woman, why should we? So this is a tactic that we need to be aware of. The enemy gets us to look at something that's not current and real in this grace-filled moment to take our mind off of it and get uptight about what's coming. And whenever we forecast about what it is, we don't know what it's going to be like when it's here and the Lord is working in the midst of that. No matter how bad it is, there's always some opportunity in there for growth. Something good. My grandfather, God bless him, 95 years old. And when he talks, well, he's not so capable anymore. But when he could, and he spoke about the happiest moments in his life, Do you know when those moments were? The depression. The happiest moments of his life. The worst economic catastrophe in the history of this country. Happiest moments of his life. Because God was doing something in that catastrophe. And he loved it. And brought communities together and families together. There were many blessings. So we have to keep this in mind. Tonight what I want to do is give us more specific tools 
tools that the church is, provides for us because it's provided to the church by God, by Jesus himself or by the Holy Spirit, which he gave, gives the church. Gave the church on Pentecost, we celebrated that, and continues to give the church. So these tools are going to help us regain the peace once lost. Then next week, we're going to talk about maintaining that peace after it gained. So that by the end of this three weeks, we'll know what it is predominantly that causes us to lose our peace and what we need to do practically to regain and maintain it. Sound like a deal? I think so. <laughs> this, is, this is the wisdom of the church. I'm not making anything up. At least that's what I'm telling you. I'm not making anything up. This is the wisdom of the church. So we're going to hit five points tonight. Five tools for gaining. First is simple to say, simple to say, hard to do. Responding to God's grace and initiative. Responding to God's grace and initiative. You see, we cannot act on God or on anything good. We can't do anything that pleases Him, anything that's good for our soul, anything that's good for our neighbor, unless He first provides us the grace to do it. We can't. That's how weak we are. But fortunately, He's always providing us the means. So He initiates the relationship that he wants with us in baptism. Not very many infants are able to respond to God in baptism. But because he's the initiator, all he cares about is whether or not they can object to his initiation, his invitation. Fortunately for little babies, they cannot do that either. So no, it's true they cannot respond, but they cannot object and reject him either. And so we baptize them. And so this grace is initiated as they're brought into his family. Then what? Then how do we continue to offer ourselves in response to this gift? Father Philippe says in this book, this is our primary task as Christians, to learn how do I respond to him, to his, initi to his initiative, to his grace, his call for me. His call for me to be a saint. How do I do that? Because it's not easy to be a saint. But we are called to it. You and I. We're called to it. And because so few have responded to that call, we've got problems. I'm aware of the scandals. Let's not hang our heads in shame. This is an opportunity because the Holy Spirit is telling us something here. He's initiating something very radical for us lay people. If we're going to live this Catholic faith, there's only one way to do it now. We're seeing. There's only one way. There's only one way. And that's all the way. We can no longer be satisfied with half measures. We can no longer be satisfied with what I call the brill cream mentality. A little dab will do you. A little dab of Catholicism will do you. I, I put my money in a plate. I go to Mass on Sundays. That's good. I'm fine the rest of the week. 
Nope, that means death. And that means now not only death to the soul, that means we are not able to respond to our missionary call to reach out to a culture that is dying and in the, in the throes of a violent death. We, John Paul called it the culture of death. That was 20 years ago when he coined that phrase. We've gotten much worse. Where are the ones that are to be salt? Where are the ones that are to be leaven? Not someone else. You and me. And there's only one way to do it. And that's all the way. He's responding. He's initiating. And we must respond generously. Philippe gives the analogy in his book here, Searching for Maintaining Peace of a Lake. He says, how do we respond to God's grace? Primarily by keeping ourselves at peace, by refusing our fallen desires and the enemy to agitate us, which prevents God's action in our soul. Like a lake. A lake, when it's still and placid, reflects the sun, does it not? It images the sun so perfectly, in fact, so intensely that you can get your skin burned more easily by being on a, on a pool or a pond that's, that's calm as the sun's rays reflect up from that lake than if we weren't near the body of water at all. It's an intense image. And that's what our souls are supposed to be. Jesus tells his apostles, greater things than these you will do. I'm just showing you that I'm God, but my real divine work is going to be the task I'm going to accomplish through you, you fallen humans. I'm going to do great things. You're going to raise the dead. You're going to tread on serpents. You're going to heal the sick and the lepers and the paralytics. You're going to cast out demons. And you're going to do that for centuries. Greater things. Indeed, our church has. We must be like that lake in order to reflect that power, that image. The enemy knows this. He knows this all too well. I already said last week, I mentioned that he hates the present moment because it's the only thing that's real. And if it's real, then it's of God whom he despises. And so he's going to despise reality. And he wants us to take our mind off of the present moment and be preoccupied, dispersed in our mind and our emotions about things that aren't real. Because then he can suggest all kinds of stuff. And we'll listen and we'll draw it out and we'll, all of a sudden we'll be in a knot. We'll be like a lake with the winds and the speedboats churn and drudge up the mud and the waves and when a lake is agitated like that, and you look down into it, you cannot see the sun, not even on a clear day. All you see is the waves and the mud. If you see some sunlight, it's, it's there, but it's broken up. It's refracted. It's not intense. It's not clear. That's what he wants to do. So what is our task? That's what the, this whole book is about. How to avoid that agitation. How to maintain the peace. This is how we respond. Because when we're at peace, we will know what he wants us to do, and we will know what he doesn't want us to do. We'll know when to act and when not to act. It's an art, but that's why this is so important. Philippe says this on page 6. Often, 
we try to resolve things ourselves when it would become more efficacious to remain peaceful before the gaze of God and allow him to act in us. This is the chore, isn't it? There seems to be two opposing truths in the Catholic Church, but they're not opposing. If you lose one of them, you're going to fall into error. You need both. What are they? On the one hand, it's all grace. It's all from God. It's all his initiative. It's all gift. It's all him, from him, by him and through him. That's one truth we must hold to or we fall into error. But there's another that's also true. That if we don't hold this true as well, we fall into error. That truth that I must act, I must respond, I must choose, I must put into action my desires to follow God's will for me. I must obey. And it's trying to hold this tension that's confused so many Christians. Either they want to emphasize all God and none me and make us totally passive. And so the idea is, well, it's done. I'm saved. It's over. And I don't do anything. Including I don't necessarily have to avoid sin. Because it's done. And for those who believe in that, they realize that can't be right. But they don't have the mental apparatus to explain why. Nor do they have the way to understand the scriptures that tell us. That's one extreme and the other. It's all me. God's just a moral example. I need to pull myself up by, by my own bootstraps. I need to take the bull by the horns. I need to do this. We mentioned that last week too, that error, replacing Jesus with me. And so that's an error. That's more common in our secular culture. Do it yourself. Be the author of your own destiny. Set your own course. Be your own man. Do it your way. Do it my way. The song they all sing in hell. <laughs> did it my way. Yep, you did it your way. And there you are for eternity. All right, so here's the two truths that we have to hold. Both. It's his grace, but I have to respond. How do we understand this? A couple other analogies drawn from some of Philippe's other books. The analogy that he uses in, in the School of the Holy Spirit, a book that I didn't recommend to you, but any book you see with his name, you'll want it. Get it. You'll read it at a later time. Trust me. There's another one called In the School of the Holy Spirit. Bless you. And in this one, he says, our response is like that of a sailor who works diligently to get the sails ready to make sure they're sewn and all the seams are strengthened and they don't have rips in them and that, the, that it's hoisted and everything so that when the wind comes, the ship may go forward. If the sailor sits around and says, well, this is a sailing ship, let the wind do it. I'm just going to sit around and wait. It's all the wind and none me. Then you will go in circles or you'll be blown over and sink. Conversely, if he hoists the sails and does all that work generously with complete dedication, and there is no wind, same thing. He sits right there. Goes nowhere. The ship doesn't move. So it's in preparing the sail 
for the wind that enables the ship to move forward. His efforts doesn't make the ship move forward. All his efforts do is prepare for the coming of the wind, the coming of the Spirit. Another analogy that I have gained from other spiritual writers is that of a farmer who has to remove the rocks and the stumps and the weeds and the hard ground from his field in order for those seeds to be planted, to take root, and to produce fruit. If he does not, what happens to the garden? What happens to his crops? If he doesn't do anything, what will happen? They'll fail. Conversely, he could do all that preparation, but if those seeds aren't planted, and if the fruit, and he doesn't produce the fruit, it produces itself. That corn stalk grows up and produces its corn on its own. He just provides the conditions. He could do all that, but if it's not planted, nothing. You see, it's both. So, what do I mean by responding to God just this? It's all His grace. He's the wind who wants to blow us, but we've got to prepare ourselves to receive this wind. And essentially, the main task is to avoid losing peace. All right, good. That's a great point, Troy, but you still haven't told us how to do that. Point two. Let's look at some ways to do that. I mentioned last week that one of the chief causes of a loss of peace, one of the chief causes of missing the spirit, missing the wind, is sin, especially sin unrepented. But sin in general. But when we commit sins for which we do not repent, this in particular has a devilish effect a destructive effect on our interior life. This is why Jesus' first public words after being tempted in the desert, returning from the desert and begins his public ministry, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. What does that mean? Repent. Repentance. What is repentance? What would you say? What is that? Repent for the kingdom of God's at hand. Okay, what does that mean? Change. It means we have to be sorry for our sins. And we've got to change. John Henry Newman once said, to live is to change. Because we're always growing older. To be perfect is to have changed often. Meaning, you're addressing your weaknesses, you're, cha you're changing more than just what nature's going to do to you, gray your hair, give you the crow's feet, and all the other problems I'm starting to enjoy as I'm getting up there. That's going to happen. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the change that comes when we start rooting out vices and replace them with virtues. That's perfection. To be constantly changing and moving from sin and darkness into light, virtue and light. Repentance, then, is this true sorrow for the sins and the desire to change. This is why Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The one constitutive element of this kingdom is that we don't desire to belong to the kingdom of the world. That we actually desire to belong to the kingdom of God. That's why we need to repent. This was shocking to his audiences, because in the past, all you needed to do, to do to belong to the kingdom of God was follow the rules. You get circumcised, 
you keep the purification rituals and the dietary regulations, you're in. Doesn't matter what kind of wickedness is in your heart, what kind of horrible things you wish against your neighbor or doing behind closed doors with your neighbor's wife, didn't matter. So long as you did these things, you were in. That's why Jesus says, you wicked fools, you blind guides, you brood of vipers, swatting at gnats and swallowing camels, emphasizing minimal stuff and ignoring major stuff. Purify the heart. For from the heart comes forth all kinds of deeds, both wicked and good, he says. So repentance is aimed at the heart. It's aimed at this initial desire that then must transcend into our death. I don't desire sin, and when I do sin, I desire to get right back up and follow you with greater vigor than before. Thus, thus, with repentance is closely tied another concept called conversion. Repentance, sorrow for the sins, the desire for change, conversion, where the heart literally turns back towards the Lord. Here's what the Catechism of the Catholic Church says about conversion. It says that conversion is a radical reorientation of the whole life away from sin and evil and toward God. This change of heart of conversion is a central element of Christ's preaching, of the church's ministry of evangelization, and of the sacrament of penance and reconciliation. So conversion is this radical reorientation of the whole life away from sin and the pomps and temptations and lies of the devil who's constantly trying to Get us to freely give away and, and, and reject what's been given for the counterfeit way that he offers that he claims is better, which is a lie. It is worse. But we listen when we haven't converted. We listen when we haven't repented. And we lose our peace because of it, among other things. So conversion goes with this repentance, repentance, turning our hearts back. Psalm 119, it's got to be the longest psalm of all of them. It's like, it has 170 some verses. It's as long as some of the New Testament epistles. But what a beautiful, beautiful psalm. Because King David, or whoever wrote it, is saying in that psalm over and over again, I desire your law. This is where I find my peace. Your law, your teachings, your statutes. And this is my peace. This is what I desire. It says the wicked, they lose their salvation. And they lose their peace because they don't value your law. They don't desire it. So conversion is where we fix our desires on the things of God the best that we can. When we're first starting out in our spiritual life, there's going to be a lot that draws us into the world. We start where we start. The Lord knows that. We don't start off being St. Therese of Lisieux right off the bat. St. Augustine didn't start out being St. Augustine right off the bat. So I kind of like him. He's a really good sinner for a number of years. <laughs> 31 years to be exact. 
And I think, okay, that's a scene I can deal with. 31 years. He was lost and forlorn and forsaken. He was out sowing his wild oats. That I can relate to. But then he comes around and wakes up and was passionately and consumed by the love of God. So that great sinner became a great saint. That's conversion. In my life, I experienced a profound conversion in an instant. I was at a talk just like yours, much smaller than my parents' living room. And they invited some woman they didn't even know, who's now become a lifelong friend of my parents and to me. She's, I call her my spiritual mother. And she just gave a witness talk about what the Blessed Mother had done in her life. And at this time, I was an agnostic, maybe an atheist. I didn't know what I was. I wasn't a Catholic as far as I was concerned. She gave this powerful witness. She's old enough to be my mother. She's my mom's age, in fact. And by the end of the night, I was in tears, and I experienced a conversion. My life was oriented this way, and by the end of the night, my life was oriented that way, towards the light. And it just happened. By the power of her witness, the Holy Spirit used that. But conversion is an ongoing thing. There might be a first powerful one where we really step out of the darkness in which we've dwelled. But from there, it's an ongoing process of moving forward, constantly letting go of the idols that we've chained ourselves to so we may live. And it's a beautiful process. There's nothing more exciting, nothing more adventurous, I can tell you. I've had no greater excitement and joy and pleasure in my life than doing what I'm doing now compared to what I did then. I can tell you with complete confidence. That is the truth. This is the beauty of conversion. This is how we find the peace. We repent. We convert. We ask for that grace. We follow Psalm 119. We fix our desires on the Lord. All the sacraments place the Spirit of God in us. Baptism especially. When the Godhead himself and his triune nature dwells in us. Our soul become the temple. You read about the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. How only the high priest could enter there. And only on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. When in any other time he'd die. That's how holy it was. But the presence was only a shimmering cloud, a Shakinah they called it. Not an incarnate presence. Flesh and blood in full divinity at the same time. That's what we get in the sacraments. A more profound and intense reality of God dwelling in us. In us. Stop and think about that for a moment. My soul, the dwelling place for God, who made this entire universe and has every grain of sand counted, dwells in me? Yeah, dwells in you and in me. And we receive him from these holy altars, from the hands of our priests in the Eucharist, where he comes to us, body, blood, soul, and divinity, mixing his resurrected human flesh, his sacred humanity with our fallen, so the two mingle, so we too will be risen on the last day. But in particular, there's the sacrament of reconciliation, where a dead man experiences resurrection in just a few moments, or dead woman, that they're in there in that confessional and they come out alive, 
just as sure as Lazarus, who was dead and decayed and came out alive. Every time we go in that sacrament, a miracle. No matter how far gone we think we are, no matter how dead and decayed we think we are, this is the beauty of these sacraments where the Spirit of God comes in our souls and gives us the essence of peace and gives us the strength to do battle, a battle that does not end until our death. God calls us to have what Philippe calls goodwill. Goodwill, what is that? That is that in general, our our overall orientation according to conversion is to please God and to love him and love neighbor. Now, none of us do that with complete intensity every moment of every day. We'd be the greatest of saints. But how we know we have this is that when we fall, we, we desire to be reconciled to him immediately. We want to be back in good, grace, good graces with him. That's goodwill. Bad wills where someone sins, they don't care. They're not interested in pleasing God. They're not interested in returning. They wish to flee him, in fact. And we may know people like that. Maybe we're like that. Maybe we were like that. I was like that. All he calls from us is goodwill. He knows we're still going to struggle and fall. We have this false notion of sanctity. That sanctity consists in not falling. That's impossible for us. Rather, sanctity consists in how rapidly we rise again after falling. How quickly we get back up. That's goodwill. That's all God asks of us. To desire to please Him even though we know we won't. And when we falter, to just rise again and rush back into His arms. Tell Him we're sorry, and then forget it and move on. And if it's a serious enough offense, go to the sacrament, which I'll talk about more in just a moment. Sacrament of reconciliation. So this goodwill is cultivated when we repent from our sin, when we experience conversion, we've received the sacraments. Now we're ready to seek about pleasing God, to loving Him. And all of our deeds, knowing that we won't always, but knowing that when we do stumble and fall, maybe it's a big fall, maybe it's a bad sin, to rise again and go seek that reconciliation and His mercy and move forward. That's goodwill. That's all He asks. He'll do the rest. If we keep getting up, I used to think this kind of goodwill wasn't for me because I thought, I keep sinning. I keep falling. I don't get this saint thing. I thought the saints were just kind of born that way. And I wasn't born that way. Thus, it wasn't for me because every time I tried it, I failed. This religion thing's not working out, I thought. This was after my conversion. I was trying so hard, I kept blowing it. Then I talked with a friend of mine who had been an evangelical Christian for a while before he came back, and he said, he said, you know, when I was a Protestant, we had a saying, fake it till you make it. I said, what does that mean? He said, that means that you, you act as though you have this goodwill, this desire for God, even though you know you don't. You do the things that a person who desires God would do until you start actually making it, until you start actually really having that in your heart. And each time you blow, you just rise again and and return to him. Hmm. Well, that I could do. Any any poor slob could do that. And I'm a poor slob. I could do that. That was really insightful. And soon after that, I saw, uh, I'd seen it before, but it had been a number of years. I saw the movie Cool Hand Luke. Remember that movie? 
Paul Newman and George Kennedy, for those of you who didn't see the movie, I'll tell you the scene that sticks out in my mind. Paul Newman's arrested and sent to some work camp. Uh, instead of prison, they put him to work. And uh, George Kennedy's a big bully and doesn't like Paul Newman. And they get in a boxing match. And, uh, and George Kennedy just pulverizes Paul Newman, knocks him to the ground. Newman gets back up. Kennedy busts him in the chops again, knocks him to the ground. He gets back up, busts him again, knocks him to the ground. He gets back up and he says, stay down. I'm going to kill you. And Paul Newman gives some little whippy little swing at him and, you know, hits him about that hard. He punches him again, knocks him down. He keeps getting back up. No matter what, he kept getting knocked down, his face pushed inside out. He kept getting back up. Because that's how I felt with sin and my fight against it. I'm getting smashed in the nose. And so I figured the religion thing, maybe it's not working for me after all. I didn't realize, just keep getting back up. And you know who wins in the end? He does. Because George Kennedy gives up, gives him a big hug, and from then on they become good buddies. Meaning that those things that oppose us in life, if we persevere, can become the very things that make us in life. And Jesus has done a number on sin. What is that martial art? Is it judo or jujitsu where you take your enemy's force and use it against him? Does anybody know? Judo, we'll say. The enemy's attacking you with that knife and you use the force he's using against you, turn it against himself. So Jesus is done with sin. So when we find ourselves with sin, we're not so estranged from him as to be unable to be helped by him. Rather, we can meet him right there in the darkness of that terrible sin. And the power that took us down can now be rerouted and turned back against the enemy and we can rise again and move forward. Isn't that a great tool? There's no reason to lose peace if that's the case. So perseverance is key. But how really then do we do that? How do we really come face to face with our darkest enemies, the seven deadly sins, who are trying to destroy us, rob us of our peace and our soul, our salvation? How do we face up to them and do the divine jujitsu move on them and defeat them and be the Paul Newman and see that those are opportunities for us to grow? That's where the sacrament of reconciliation comes in, point three. Sacrament of Reconciliation. What does Jesus say when he institutes the sacrament? In John's Gospel, chapter 20, after resurrection. Do you remember? Does anyone know that passage? John chapter 20, verses 19 and following. They're hiding in the upper room. The door is barred. He walks through the door. And he says something to them. Peace. Peace be with you. Then he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them the Holy Spirit. And he repeats it. Peace be to you. Then he says, Whose sins you forgive are forgiven. Whose sins you retain are retained. This is the ministry of peace. The ministry of reconciliation. Because in that sacrament, though we may be a dead man or woman bound and tied to the anchor that cast us in the bottom of the sea, 
we come out of there free and regenerated and renewed. Yes, the tendency for that sin remains. That's why God gives us greater strength each time we go to that sacrament to overcome that sin. This is another hang-up I had, another problem I had to overcome. Why, Lord, if I go to the sacrament of reconciliation, do I turn around and commit that sin ten minutes after I went? Didn't it work? I thought you said this worked. I thought I was supposed to be done with it. You are done with that one. This is a new one. You want me to keep giving you new sins? Why don't you just deal with the ones you have and be satisfied with those? We'll weed them out one at a time. You see, the tendency for those sins remain. And the reason why they remain is because that's how we grow in fighting against them. How silly it would be for a weightlifter to complain to the gym manager, you've got too much gravity in this gym. How about they're trying to bench press 350 pounds and I couldn't. The gravity was pulling it down. I couldn't get up. You need to tone down the gravity. You need to get rid of that gravity so that I can bench press 350. If it were even possible for that gym owner to get rid of the gravity, sure the guy might put up 350, but he would have accomplished nothing because 350 would weigh nothing. He might as well put up 13,050 because it weighed nothing. It's the gravity and forcing against it that he grows his muscle. That's his friend. That strain, that sweat, the pain, the forcing of the habit of going. Look at all that we do for a body that is made of ash and will return to it and be worm food someday soon. That's all it's going to be until it's risen. We go to all this trouble, but we won't lift a finger. We complain if there's any, any expectation from us to do more than we think is necessary for our spiritual life. Because we're mediocre. If, if we're willing to do that for our physical life, fine, exercise is good. How much more should we be willing to do this for our spiritual? Concupiscence is the name given to that tendency that we have to sin. The tendency to turn us away from God and away from peace. And it remains because it's our spiritual and our moral gravity. In fighting against it is how we grow. How we become strong. Don't complain that you're confessing the same sins over and over again. Be thankful that you don't have a whole batch of new ones each time you go in there. That would be worse. Boy, each time I go in there, I have a whole new batch of new ones. <laughs> and I still have those old ones to boot. I'm not, that, then you'd have a problem. Be thankful. I've only got these. Good Lord. These I can deal with. Yeah, because one by one, as we work on that concupiscence, as we work against it, we'll root them out. If we had only practiced that sacrament more than Christmas and Easter, we might find out it actually does work. You go twice a year and you're not, you're not even cognizant of sins that are in your life you can't even repent from. And so you're going to think the sacrament doesn't work, God's not active in your life, and you're going to lose your peace. And you're going to say, I tried that Catholic thing, it didn't work. When in fact, it was a half effort, if that I already said there's only one way to do this and the Holy Spirit is showing us now in this day and age only one way and one way only and that's all the way. Not half measures. That's not the fault of the church. That's our fault. If I gave half measure in a gym and I pulled something or I weren't, wasn't gaining strength, that's not, it's not gravity's fault. It's not the gym owner's fault. It's my fault. 
And if we recognize that, then we need to recognize even more how true it is in our spiritual life. This sacrament brings us to a powerful new way of living, to be children of light and to walk in this light. It repairs our relationship with God and with neighbor because that priest not only represents Christ, the head of his church, the mystical body, but also Christ, the body. He represents all of us. So when I'm going there, my sins affect you the way they affect Christ. And I'm being absolved from both of that. And I'm being reconciled to you and to him in one fell swoop and you to me. And now I can be at peace. Because I have a right relationship now I can enjoy. And I have the strength that's been given to me. And I have newfound humility. Because when I used to be one of those who said, why do I have to go to a priest? I can go straight to God. What I was really afraid of was admitting what I was doing. It's my pride. When I got over that, sort of got over it. So pride's going to die exactly 10 minutes after I do, my own personal pride. But, why, but I made some, some small steps by going to that sacrament because I had to fess up and face up. So this is a great tool at our disposal. So we've mentioned so far responding to God in peace. And how do we get that? Repentance and conversion. Reconciliation. All right. Two final points. Next. Abandon in trust to the Lord God Almighty. Abandon your life. To him who knows what you need. Jesus says, look at the lilies in the field and the sparrows. They neither toil nor spin. But look at how your father arrays them in all their glory. Yet not even Solomon arrayed in all of his glory in his temple looked like one of these. How much more will your heavenly father take care of you, O man of little faith? Actually, the translation is not quite correct. It doesn't say, O men of little faith. The word is dinky. O men of dinky faith. O men of dinky, little itty bitty faith. How much more would the Heavenly Father take care of you, O men of dinky faith? That's what he really says. Dinky. So let's not have dinky faith. Let's trust him. And, and Philippe covers this point too in his book. And he says, he quotes St. Therese of Lisieux, a doctor of the church, who says, what do you do when you can't abandon yourself to God because you don't trust him? Abandon anyway. Do it anyway. Fake it till you make it. You're going to be sitting around till doomsday if you're waiting. Okay, I feel the trust coming. It's not quite here yet. It's coming, though. One of these days I'm going to be able to abandon myself. You're going to be waiting until it's too late. Do it anyway. You'll find out that he's there to catch you. Don't worry that there's doubt in your heart. He's judging you based on your effort. He gives A for effort, you know. Give the effort anyway. Do it anyway. Abandon your life. Commit your life to our Lord. Entrust your life to our Blessed Mother. Because that's what he did. When he's in heaven, he's thinking, hmm, now how am I going to become the Redeemer and Savior of the world? I got it. I'm going to entrust myself to her. And that's exactly what he did. He pours himself into her womb like you pour wax into a mold and she molds him and forms him from then on into the man, Savior, Redeemer, God that he is. 
we can do the same. Abandon. Have a statue of Our Lady of the Crucifix in your home. When you're worried about someone, take your sticky note out, write what you're worried about, and put it under there and abandon it and forget about it. The little sisters of the poor were well known about this. All kinds of stories about them. One of the, a pastor I used to work for said he was visiting them one time. They have a home in Denver where I grew up. And they were out of potatoes. And they had to feed all their guests because they take care of the elderly who are dying. What are we going to do about the potatoes? And he was a young seminarian. They're volunteering. And they went to the mother superior. We're out of potatoes. Someone miscounted. Oh, no, not a problem. She took out a little sheet of paper. We need potatoes, Joseph. And stuck it under statue. St. Joseph went about her business. He said, not 45 minutes later, a big pickup truck, not a pickup truck, a dump truck, backed up and knocked on the back door. Did you guys need some potatoes? I'm from the such and such down the street. And we have all these potatoes left over. And filled all their bins. Less than an hour. And he says that's a true story. And I've heard that same, a similar story from other little sisters of the poorer groups. So I know things like that happen. Abandon. Anyway, your worries especially, don't cling to them like you're some lone ranger. Even lone ranger had Tonto and Silver and Scout and whoever else. We're not a lone ranger. We need God and he's waiting for us to cast our cares upon him. That's what he's there for. And finally, we need to work on patience. Here's a good prayer. God, grant me patience and grant it to me right now. Actually, that's not a good prayer. Never mind. Scratch that one. He doesn't answer that one. How do we, how do we get patience? Same thing. Fake it till you make it. I'm an impatient person. Okay, well, what would a patient person do right at this moment? Well, he wouldn't give the bird to that guy, tell him he's number one who just cut me off in traffic. He'd be patient about it. And maybe that guy has to get to the hospital to take care of some serious hangnail incident. And who am I to get in his way? Uh, maybe he's really uh, painful on his pinky and I better let him go. That's what a patient person would do. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to imitate it. Right now the imitation is out here. I'm thinking what would they do because it's not in me. Eventually it'll get ingrained in me. Same with abandonment and trust. Same with repentance and conversion. And then next week when we talk about more ways on to maintain this, so will the greatest virtue of all charity, which is the real key ingredient to overcoming loss of peace and to maintain a deep sense of peace where we're madly in love with God and with each other, with our neighbor. Then we've made it. All right, so these are the tools. You know what to avoid. You know to go to confession. So next week, I'm going to be talking to a bunch of converted saints. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. Saint Anthony of Padua. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you all very much. Thanks for listening to The Movement. To find out more about Holy Family School of Faith's mission to lead others to Jesus through friendship, good conversation, and the rosary, head over to our website at schooloffaith.com.